0: Myth is about vertical imagination. Myth opens up the connections we have to the heavens and the connections we have to the underworld. And so I often say to people who question, well, what is myth? I say myth is a series of lies that tells the truth. (laughs) On the surface, a myth is false, but it carries deeper truths than you can find anywhere else.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling, and I'm so delighted to have Michael Mead on the podcast. We've been trying to arrange this for quite some time, and uh, I just love his work, and welcome, Michael. Good to be with you, Raghu. So, uh, just so everyone has an idea, you know, i like in, in, in your bio on the site, the first thing uh, is storyteller. And that is uh, absolutely. um, I'm totally into, and what I try and do as well is get people to tell stories, tell their stories, or tell stories that have impacted their lives. So, uh, but uh, uh, Michael's an author and a scholar of mythology and anthropology and psychology, and uh, has a uh, a number of books out. But we're going to give you a link so you can find all of them. And he's also the founder, founder of the Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a nonprofit network of artists and activists and community builders. So uh, Michael is a very busy man, so I'm really happy, as I said before, that we uh, finally got to, to get together. So I guess it, when we talk about myth, most people are familiar with it um, uh, certainly from back in, you know, my day and your day uh, was through Joseph Campbell. And I'm, I'm just w- uh, wondering, uh, how, did, how did that happen for you in terms of, did you meet up with him when you were young? I mean, just know about him and, and, and you know, tuned into him? Or how did it happen for you that you came into this, uh, this wonderful uh, platform including all you know all of these uh, various uh, um, schools that you have uh, have absorbed in your life.
0: Well, by the time I met Joseph Campbell, I had already been telling stories for a number of years ah, oh. And um, my first uh, induction into the realm of myth happened when I was 13 and it changed my life. But there was no one in my life who could confirm uh, that this was part of my life. (laughs) I received a book on myths by mistake on my 13th birthday. and uh, By mistake? (laughs) Well, my aunt had asked me, she knew not to ask me what I wanted for my birthday. We were a poor family. And I had learned, don't ask for what you want because you won't get it. And it makes everybody depressed, the fact that you can't get it. So, uh, but my aunt said, what are you interested in? And I said, right now, history. And I was I was just literally turning 13 and I was interested in history. So she went to a bookstore and uh, to get, apparently to get me a book on history. She was in a notoriously short person. So someone pointed to an upper shelf and said, that's where the history books are. She got one. They wrapped it up. She gave it to me. I tore some of the paper off, and she looked, and she said, it's a wrong book. (laughs) And I'm looking at it and going, no, I want this book. And she's saying, but it's a wrong book. And I ripped the rest of the paper off, and it says Mythology by Edith Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And so... It was the wrong book, but it was the right book. It was a mistake, but it was a fortunate mistake. Mm-hmm. And that night I read that almost that entire book. Oh, really? And I was in a different world. And I realized it didn't matter that I was just 13. It didn't matter that we were poor. It didn't matter that I was the smallest kid in the class. Nothing mattered. I qualified to be in this other realm mm-hmm. uh, just by virtue of opening the book and i've got an understanding at that age um, that was greater than anything i was learning in school or or in any other circumstances but it had also the the downside was that no one when i would say to people like teachers or whoever i would try to talk to my friends everybody would go what are you talking about you know mm-hmm. and so so it was a, became a private thing and i thought it was kind of a hobby I continued to read and kind of study myth as a teenager. For years. Yes. Yeah. And then and later too and then and then I got so full of stories that you know I'd be at an event or even a party and I couldn't help it I'd say, "Do you ever hear that story about how Odin lost his eye?" And people would go, <laughs> "Get yourself a stage, dude." And so, <laughs> so I had to eventually realize that this is something I had to express from within. And uh, so I started telling stories. Mm. And, and the door, those doors opened really fast. I mean, it's, the first time I tried it. It just opened up some doors. Mm. So there was that sense of a call and sense of a a bit of a destiny in it. No, oh, wonderful. And when did you meet Joseph Campbell? So I'm not good with years. You stay in the mythic world enough, and you forget the <laughs> yeah, right. historical but world. Earlier life yeah, right. versus right. Mid- I get yeah. less Chronos and more Kairos, and so. Uh, he was older. It had to be 1990 or 91 or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, people arranged a conference so, so he and I could meet. And in particular, people wanted him to hear me tell stories. Cause I start, I started out telling stories while playing African drums. Really? which I still do but not on Zoom I don't Zoom doesn't like drums. <laughs> yeah. Probably yeah. doesn't like Africa I don't know but um <laughs> so so uh so significant people wanted Joe Campbell and I to meet and uh and that was that was interesting let's say that was interesting.
1: Can you tell Can you us that? Well I'll tell you, what you one re- party call
0: so, of course, I revered him. I had found Hero with a Thousand Faces probably in 1967 or something like that. And uh, and then I had followed what he was writing and publishing and got a lot out of it. And uh, But I had found my own way. I thought it was my own way. It turned out it's really the ancient way. Mm. If you go back to Africa, the storytellers are griots, and they often mm. play drums. Yeah. If you go to Siberia... They're shamans and they play drums. If you go to Ireland, they're shanakes and they play usually drums, but maybe another instrument. And so storytelling has been woven with musical instruments all along. And I had stumbled into that accidentally. And like the way I got the book, too. And so um, so we went to dinner after I had told the story and worked with the audience, and Joe Campbell was in the audience. And we went to dinner, and just a few people, and so someone said, Joe, what do you think of Michael telling stories? And he says, lose the drum. So so that was interesting because that's the actual oral tradition. And Joe Campbell was coming out of the literary tradition. Mm -hmm. Even if he's referring back to oral stuff, he's a literary person, extremely so. Mm -hmm. So then there was one other odd moment. So he said, he says, one other thing, don't ask the audience what they think the story means. You tell them what it means. And I said, well, wait a minute. I got that idea from you. And he said, no, you didn't. And I said, yeah, hero with a thousand faces, page 69, right hand page, <laughs> three, par- three paragraphs down. Yeah. You wrote everyone gets a myth in their own way. It speaks to them directly and differently. And I said I took that and made that an active engagement with the audience. And he said, "Well, don't do it." (laughs) (laughs) So it was one of those, you know, odd moments.
1: Oh, wow! Wow! He is such a, you know, a cultural icon. It's pretty. Oh yeah,
0: I mean, he did tremendous work, and I still revere his work. But you know how it is—you don't always connect with people well with people that you revere. Yeah, that happens. Yes, I had that experience. <laughs> and, and there is a uh, there is a form of mentoring called mentoring by opposition, and mm-hmm. so I took it as mentoring by opposition.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right.
0: um, so many people
1: who, if you bring up the subject of myth, have really cockeyed, shall I say, ideas about it, or. They they have real trouble connecting with it as as a uh, something that's relevant in 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 our day to day lives in terms of especially those of us who have found a path to uh, be free of 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 some of the things that really bind us and and don't allow us out of our uh, self interested day to day existence. And can you, what would you say uh, to Everyone, and there's many people listening who don't really have a great idea of what the, um, the properties of, of transformation and potential that myth has that we have seemingly lost um, through, you know, many,
0: many, many, many generations. Well, we lost partially because of people pretending the world is only objective, So when people in the West took the idea of the subject-object split and exaggerated it, a whole bunch of stuff got lost. And part of what lost, I call it vertical imagination. Myth is about vertical imagination. Myth opens up the connections we have to the heavens and the connections we have to the underworld. And so I often say to people who question, well, what is myth? I say, myth is a series of lies that tells the truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the surface, a myth is false, but it carries deeper truths than you can find anywhere else. Mm. And so, uh, and then the Greeks had this great thing where they'd say, there's two ways to account for the world. Logos, from which we get logic, reason, objectivity, facts, and then mythos. Which includes emotions, feelings, longings, and keyword imagination. And so if, if you want to exa- examine the modern world, wh- what has been lost is this vertical imagination. The world has become flat with the world wide web as a flat web and all the extensions are horizontal and we've lost that vertical up down dimension, which is what myth brings. Mm-hmm. And so. The lack of myths reduces the amount of imagination in a culture and in the people of a culture. Can
1: you actually give us, share with us a myth that uh, perhaps connects with, most especially, I'm thinking of the kind of separation that we're living in right now and division And and I I read something of yours uh, in mythic terms the presence of opposing opposing forces it was there from the very beginning in this original split that produced the origins of life life appears again whenever things need to begin again and we seem to be at that in that moment is there
0: so um, well Yates for instance said things fall apart and the center cannot hold. And, and we're in that point where there, there is no center. When the, when you get polarization amongst people, mm-hmm. that means the center is lost. That's why it's polarized. Yeah. When there's a center, people are connected through the center and you can have opposing views, but be connected. So we've lost the center and you could say the center is myth. Um, humans are mythic by nature. Everybody dreams at night. And whether they remember it or not, everybody's dreaming. If you stop dreaming, you literally die. Um, and, but when you attend to the dreams, you find that the characters and the events in the dreams are much more like myth, uh, or they turn daily life into myth. And so we've lost the dream. We've lost the imagination of things. And one way to think about that, I think, is what the, at the end of an era, we, we have, Uh, We're at the end of a worldview. The Western worldview is collapsing, just as the institutions that came from it are collapsing. And so we're at the end, which in mythic terms, myth becomes really important because in mythic terms, the end is connected to the beginning. The world doesn't come to an end. The world as we knew it, the worldview that we had comes to an end and then the world starts over again, which is really the core mystery of life. In mythological terms, the core mystery is life, death, renewal. That's the mystery of nature that's happening as we speak right now. You know, some trees are falling down, starting to rot into this soil, which will then produce the nourishment for the next forest to grow. Um, and that's the story of the cosmos. The stars die. And out of the bursting of the dying star, there's more stars. We are in the middle of a mystery called life-death-renewal. And that's the myth we need to understand at this time, or else we become fatalistic and defeated. Mm. Can you
1: tell that the that one myth that uh, I just love it? Uh, and that's the
0: eagle and the child. Well, that's a tough story.
1: Is it? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. All right. So that's this. That's an African story. It's told in several parts of Africa, and it begins in a small a uh, town or, you know, uh, a village, an old ancient village. And in the village, a woman has become a mother by giving birth to her first child. And everything goes well. She's healthy. The child's healthy. And pretty soon she's ready to go out to work in the garden. She has a garden plot. That's the family plot that she works. And she goes out with the child on her back and she's working and the heat of the day is intensifying. And she takes the infant off her back and lays it at the foot of a tree nearby, she can still see it and she's working in the garden. And she hears the infant start to cry and she turns ready to to go and take care of it. And she sees a huge bird descend from the sky and alight upon the child. And she's horrified, although she does notice as soon as the bird comes down, the child stops crying and falls into a peaceful sleep. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. she's a mother and her instincts are strong and she goes and she takes the baby and, and she suckles it and holds it for a while. And and so then when she gets home, back to the village in the hut that she says with her husband that night, she doesn't mention it. The next day, the same thing happens. When she puts the baby down, it begins to cry and he comes and she recognizes this is an eagle that comes down and settles on the baby baby and soothes it and puts it into a peaceful sleep. And now she's seen and she's really recognized what's going on. So that night she goes back to the hut and she tells her husband, here's what happened, the big bird, the infant and everything. And he says, I don't believe that. You're making this stuff up. That's impossible. That's like a person saying, I don't believe in myth. I don't know. So anyway... So that night, as they say, was spent the way you spend the night in a hut where one spouse doesn't believe the other one and the other spouse is feeling rejected. Third day, of course, it's a, it's a myth. It has to happen three times. She goes back out. Same thing happens. She put the infant down, and here comes the eagle, comes down. And "And as it's coming down, she knows what's going to happen. She runs back to the village, and she calls her husband and says, come on, now you can see it for yourself. So the two of them come running. They get to the garden, the edge of the garden. They stop, and he happened to have been sharpening his arrows. And so when he runs, he's carrying a bow and a couple of arrows. And so as they stop and he sees the eagle descending, he gets scared, or he feels like he has to protect the child. He takes both arrows, puts them in the bow, and shoots them. The arrows fly through the air. The eagle sees the arrows coming, and it lifts its wings and rises in the air, and the arrows go into the infant who dies. And then, while everyone is struck by what's going on, the eagle alights on a branch of the, t- of the tree and speaks and says to the parents, this is how killing begins from now on people will kill each other. Killing has now entered the world. Mm-hmm. End of the story. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that's a tough story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you tell that in, to people who don't know the mythic realm and they hear it as literal, oh, my God, how can the child be killed and how terrible it is? But it would be told in tribal circumstances, everybody would understand there, there's not an eagle that's going to settle on the child. That's not what's going to happen. It's just metaphorical. Right? That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. So when you break the story down, you say there's a lot of interesting moments in there. The key thing to remember, I think, is that what soothes our soul is more likely to be a big thing, as big as an eagle, as magnificent as a flying bird, rather than some small practice or something we can go by. It's relating the soul of the child to something very big that eventually will bring solace and peace to that soul meantime most of us have our children from parents who didn't recognize who we were that's typical in the modern world for the parents not to have any idea of what their children came to the world to do and most of us have at least two arrows stuck right in us Mm. right in the place where our spirit would like to grow and we call them trauma, traumatic experiences yeah, in the story. Yeah. They're metaphorical arrows. Another interesting point is the young mother actually sees it. The second time she gets it, this is a vision of her child she gets. But she can't trust herself. She feels like she has to have confirmation from the father. Mm-hmm. And that in, in that sense, she doesn't trust herself with this mythical world or the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. And then the father... When he sees, he wants to project, project, protect a child, but he actually knows better. This isn't, you know, the child sleeping. It's not hurt, and so he acts out of fear and doesn't trust his own understanding of the spirit world. And they're not actually humans. They're. Characters in a story. And the next time I tell the story, the child's alive and the parents are alive and all that kind of thing. So it's not about literal. It's about the symbolic world, Mm. the mythological Mm. internal world. And the story says we're all wounded in exactly the place where our spirit would like to grow. Mm. And I'm tapping my heart because that's where the arrows are. Oh, that's so great. 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 Yeah. It's brilliant. These old stories. Mm. You know, modern people... Uh, study psychology and talk about it, and and indigenous people acted out psychology, mm. and mm. so this is the kind of story that would be acted out, and everybody present would be thinking about how am I wounded, how many arrows are in my inner child of spirit, yeah, that kind of thing. That's the point of the story is to consider that,
1: yeah, and and uh, in this same uh, blog that you wrote, uh. You say, we are the descendants, I love this, we are the descendants of, this gives hope, we are the descendants of ancient peoples who survived many collapses and left stories that remind that healing and a deeper sense of wholeness are also nearby and become both more important and more possible when the original split in the world is acknowledged and touched. Healing requires touching the original split again but the, the power of, of remembering how many people have gone before us and gone through, I mean, we are all saying this is really tough times, you know, I mean, the Hindus call it Kali Yuga, we're, we're right there, baby. And uh, to, to have a, a grasp of the reality of what we have been handed down and there is something to do. Is is absolutely to return back to, to, to these myths, to connection with nature, to uh, how to live holistically amongst ourselves.
0: Yeah, I call it a collective rite of passage. Yeah, and yeah. that even though the aim is to go forward with the new vision of the world, it has to begin by going back. And the going back isn't going back historically. We've been educated to think historically time is history, but it's actually going back to what they call primordial time, going back to the beginning of creation, going back to when all the potentials were there, which is the way rites of passage used to work. Mm -hmm. And so there's not going to be a way forward. unless, well, There's an old saying that says you can only go as far forward as you can reach back. Mm -hmm. And... Modern Western world is so obsessed with futurism that people don't realize we have to reach back. We have to touch the original split to do healing, and we have to touch the primordial origins in order to reimagine the world. Mm-hmm. And that that process I, I like to call collective rite of passage. Collective what? Collective, what? collective rite of passage. Rite of passage, rite of. yeah. The, the entire, all of, this is about, a renewal, as you said, of the connection to humans, to nature. But it's also about a reimagination of humanity. And, um, and so you can have rite of passage on an individual level, which is really important. And most people have had partial initiations at that level. And there are times like these times when it has to happen collectively. And that doesn't mean everybody will agree and then we all change. Yeah, it means yeah. some people change enough that everybody changes. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're in. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, so here's another idea. Um, the rite of passage or the initiation or the hero's journey, call it what you want, begins with a calling, Well, when everything's falling apart, there's an increase in calling. The calling gets through better because there's not as much in the way. You know, as the, as the structure of the, of the culture uh, become thinner and more hollow, the soul knows this isn't going to, we're not going to get it from the Congress. We're not going to get it from corporate life. Where can we get it? Oh, you get it from a calling. And the old idea is everyone is called. Everyone has a calling. And another idea that I like is the calling keeps calling. And so a person could say, because I've heard it, well, I'm getting older now and I've never had a calling and the calling keeps calling. Quit talking about what you didn't have and try to open to what's calling to you now Mm. because the calling is an essential aspect of the human soul to be called to a unique expression of one's own soul and to contribute the expression of that to life, um, which connects human nature to nature. Mm. Mm. Beautifully said.
1: You know, you wrote something called hope versus despair. And uh, we, we did a thing. I don't know if you know this teacher, uh, but her name is uh, Roshi Joan Halifax. And she, yeah, you know who Roshi is. So we did a whole thing around hope. And she, uh, she, when I talked to her about it, this is for a retreat or something with Ram Dass. And uh, she said, I think we, I'd like to call it wise hope. And I said, oh, okay. Wise hope, meaning and, you know, she didn't want people to, uh, to interpret that in the way that many of us do as we go through life, you know, there's a hope that demands an outcome that we project and is not uh, open and spacious enough to allow what needs to happen, happen. So,
0: uh, yeah, talk about uh, hope and despair. Well, I call it the second level of hope. Yeah. Uh, Hope with imagination. So the first hopes are naive hopes. Mm. They're they're those hopes like I was the smallest kid in the class, so I always hoped I was going to get taller. But any geneticist or even someone just looking at my parents could say that's not going to happen. And so, but I hope for that. And other people hope to be the smartest or the brightest or the most successful. And those are naive hopes that are intended to be dashed. They're dashed by life itself because it's false hope. And so then genuine hope, wise hope, hope that's imaginative, comes after we've lost hope. And losing hope is usually called despair, Uh, despair is the French word for hope, S-P-E-R. So despair is to be without hope. And so despair is not the loss of everything. It's the step in between false hope and wise hope. Mm -hmm. And so right now, when it's easy to be despairing about this culture, I was despairing yesterday morning.
1: You know,
0: certain things in the news and I just went, oh, no, you know. And I was in despair for a few moments or whatever it was. But I felt that despair. So the old idea is... A meaningful life experience or a meaningful rite of passage or something that uh, causes a person to awaken um, requires a descent, a descent into darkness. Mm. And uh, only in the descent do we find the deeper level of hope, uh, wise hope, if we want to call it that. We find it. In the darkness, that's where it is. If it was in the light, everybody would have already found it. Everybody resists going into the dark, which is where the missing light, the missing hope, the missing imagination and the missing love is in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And so only those who have gone into darkness actually can speak meaningfully about hope. Mm-hmm. And so if we agree we're in the dark times, then the old saying is you find, if you find yourself in a descent, dive. <laughs> There's such a thing as willingly descending yeah. Yeah. because everything that can't be found in the light of day is hidden in the depths of the darkness mm-hmm. where we are called to go. Mhm. You just say that, Michael, the depths of the darkness and
1: everybody, you know, immediately what comes? Fear. And that that's one, you know, obvious m- major uh, impediment for people to dive inside themselves because of that fear.
0: But that, that particular fear is generated by a loss of vertical imagination. Mm. Most modern people think they're empty inside. So if you say, go down inside because there's something, they go, no, you know. Or even Freud had a problem with that. I mean, you know what I mean? Freud towards the end was very fearful mm. and even said that, you know, that kind of, Demonic ancient energy is down there. And that's why Jung is so valuable because Jung said, no, down there is the hidden self, the, mm, the great yeah. self. Down there is the, is the Brahma. Down there is, you know, is wisdom. And so most people have not had the experience that gives them a felt sense that there is something meaningful in their own depth. Call it the soul, call it the spirit, call it the psyche, call it, uh, you know, buddha call it whatever you want to call it most people don't really know that in a way that they embody and therefore we all have more fear than we should have
1: Mm, yeah well uh, you also have uh, many different ways of approaching how to transform one's fear Um, and i i love this uh I, I mean to say I love it is kind of weird, but uh I love it when I hear something that penetrates. I guess that's more of what I mean. Sadly and tragically, a loss of Eros and soul is at the heart of the mistreatment of nature and the earth. That just really resonated. And um and that's part of what becomes very difficult for me and you know, many of us regarding this enormous polarization when you see that that loss in in people and 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 how that is so immediately uh, affecting us all but nature and the earth i mean this is the heritage that we are giving to the next generation so very very difficult um, but uh, talk about, because uh, this is important, you, you say um, m- more of the medicines that are found in iris and love, uh, for love is the cure and also the path that can op- open us up to creation's core, which is basically the message we got when I went to India with Ram Dass back in the day when he went back the second time. We got that from uh, Neem Karoli Baba was exactly that message. But the, I, I'd love to hear how you're characterizing it, because I think it's very um, connective.
0: In Africa, the proverb is, what you love is the cure. Mm-hmm. The illness is life, and what you love is the cure. And so, again, in order to, to know what we love, we have to be cracked open somehow, Um you know, there's a certain amount of time some people actually spend their entire life there, Donald Trump. Uh, that is to say, inside the bubble of the sealed small self. And that's supposed to be cracked open. And it's cracked open often by life itself. The The initial defeats in life are not something to lament. They actually create the opportunity for this awakening for a deeper self that's trying to come into consciousness, as people call it. And that is the vehicle of love. I mean, I feel extremely fortunate on my 13th birthday, I got the wrong book that opened the world to me. And I lived with that world, you know, in my own clumsy way ever since. I mean, you know, I turn when I'm feeling stuck or gone blind or lost a sense of vitality, I go right to a story. I go to myth. Mm-hmm. um you know the way someone else might go to meditation or someone else you know might go to a, a religious practice i go right to myth mm-hmm. and uh because to me it's like uh one the idea isn't to understand a myth it's to it, is to enter it
1: mm-hmm. and
0: inside is the flowing water of life even that story the tough story about the eagle and the infant it has life in it it has knowledge in it so that's that's a way for me um and as you said, there's many ways. And in order to know oneself, in order to understand one's own nature, um, a person has to find what they naturally love and are called to. Um, and, and it's so different. It's actually unique for each person. And that's why it's hard to lay out the path for people. And, or you can lay out the beginning steps, and the beginning steps could be anything. Could be Christianity. Could be Buddhism. Could be science. It can be almost anything. But eventually the person comes to where there are no more steps in front of them. They used to call that the pathless path. Mm. And then we have to find our own steps in the midst of the darkness uh, that we carry inside. And in midst of the darkness of the world, oftentimes, and it's hard to hold on to the notion, especially if it hasn't been experienced in some depth, to realize that what's down there is the source of love and the source of beauty and the source of knowledge and that we are uniquely connected to it. And when we find that, we find the connection from our own human nature to great nature. That separation is not an accident. People, modern people think that culture and nature are two separate things. They yeah. are not. The old saying was, nature is the, is spirit with a green garment on. Culture is spirit with a multicolored garment on. Mm. They're two parts of the same dance. Human nature is connected to nature unless you're a modern person and you feel isolated, separated from your own nature, and therefore nature seems separate from us. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You
1: know, back to hope versus despair and and you just mentioning geez, I was watching the news a couple of minutes of it, and I was, oh, whoa, you know, until I caught myself. But as you say here, the current cascade of worldwide crisis may present an epitome of extreme conditions that threaten, and I think this is really revealing in terms of what many, many people are going through. It's a threat in the basic sense of identity as of people as well as the character of institutions. Look what is going on. I mean, that is so transparently prevalent. Since the sense of a unifying center, which we, you talked about, no longer holds, either in politics or at the level of society in general, must be sought and found at another level of being.
0: And we're not going to find it. The Congress is not going to find it. It's it's also a worldview that's fading. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard thing to accept, so then what you get is a, like in the United States, you get a really, uh, hmm, strange, uh, movement like let's go, let's go back to, let's make America great again. The way it was, there is no way back. It's already gone. The whole worldview is basically gone. And there's just a lot of confusion because the next one hasn't been found. So another image I use is we're on the threshold between the fading away of the world as we knew it mm. and the, coming vision of the next world that we can't quite see and everyone's on the threshold it's just some people are looking backwards and other people are trying to find ways to move forward and and one of the tricks is to uh, to learn how to be in the betwixt and between mm. Mm. and any meaningful practice will put you betwixt and between because whether it's meditation or creative arts which are the two main roads of practice you have to leave the daily world To be properly in a meditative contemplative space. And you have to lead the daily world to be in creative activity. And so we have to learn how to negotiate that in between space and go back and forth. So yeah, I get stunned by the news. I get stunned. I read it. I read it every day. I read it. I don't know. I'm a witness. I want to be a witness to the, you know, to the dissolution in a way. Uh, but also you can find gems in there because uh, as things are disappearing, other things are being discovered. There are amazing things that are happening too. But anyway, I get stunned by it. And then I remind myself that we're in this in-between place. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a continuous uh kind of cascade of crises, of threats and dangers. We're there. Mm-hmm. There's no way out tonight or tomorrow. There are ways in where we can find those things that we really came here to live. And when a person lives the meaning of their life into the world, it begins to affect the world. And when enough people do that, then we're moving off the threshold Mm. and we're beginning to find the world that's trying to get our attention. Mm.
1: You talk about the in-between places and and mentioned that word, of which I love, the liminal state, which is directly correlated to the Buddhist thing of bardos. And and the idea of us entering and having consciousness to enter into these states, realizing what they are, has a tremendous uh, opens up tremendous possibilities for those moments where you were going to go through the that big movement right out of your body. It's
0: it's the only way to get there. It it doesn't come free of charge. It comes with a little sacrifice of accepting being in the darkness, being in the dissolution, being in the confusion, being in the underworld. It's been talked about so many different ways. And once we accept that, then we are actually starting to align with the potentials that are always trying to enter the world. There's an old idea that says that knowledge, beauty, and meaning is constantly trying to enter the world and can only enter through those human beings alive at a given time. But it also can't enter if we're not creating the space for it. Mm -hmm. And that means the same, the strange way you, you sacrifice when you begin to meditate. We're letting go. I'm letting go of this. I'm letting go of that. You sacrifice in order to do art, which is its own kind of contemplation. I'm letting go of whatever the news says. I'm letting go of some date I could go on, I'm letting go to some meal I could have. And that little sacrifice opens up this in-between space, which can be fearful for a long or short time, and then something else comes. And that something else is the energy, some people call it divine, some people call it spirit, it's actually the energy of creation trying to enter through us one more time. Mm -hmm. And that's the joy of life. And that that's where actually some kind of fulfillment can occur also.
1: How about talking about the news, Michael, and what we're seeing about what's going on with education? How about that? And how, I mean, banning education, basically.
0: Well, behind all of it is nihilism. I mean, that's yeah, one way right, to understand right. it, right? The, whatever they're arguing as they're trying to destroy things that are, you know, the essential Institutions of culture and practices of culture, and so the only either you're you're going that way because because brilliant new things are coming in, but if you're going it that way and it's hurting people and it's denying history and it's it's causing separation, dividing people further, then it's being driven driven by nihilism, because first you you deny certain books, then you deny all books, then you deny all people that read books, then you deny all the people that know the people that you know, and it's nihilism. And nihilism is part of this collapse of the old world. It's mostly white culture doing that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's white culture that has the fear that it's coming to an end. It's an accurate fear. All the evidence is the world is going to, is becoming and has been becoming for a while more diverse. That's happening. But the world was more diverse before white people made up the idea of white. (laughs) And so it's really a return closer to the tribal world, closer to the indigenous is really where it's going to go. And so it's horrible. And, you know, I mean, we all love certain books and all, and we all love people. And everybody's supposed to be unique and have their own chance at life. It is a horrible thing going on. I frame it for myself as part of an apocalypse, the old Greek word apocalypse, which doesn't mean fiery end of the world. It means collapse, renewal. Mm-hmm. So we're observing the collapse of a literate world. We're conser- you know, observing the collapse of a, what would you call that a dignified world. Um, it, it's actually collapsing before our eyes. And then certain people champion the collapse and claim that they're powerful and, you know, and then they collapse, you know. And uh, so there's a great old story about the old woman who reweaves the world. But there be, before she begins reweaving the world, she sees this beautiful world that she's woven uh, thrown onto the floor of this cave and become chaos, And all the weaving she's done, she's the old woman who weaves the world, is reduced to chaos. And she's there for a moment. It doesn't say what she's feeling. We have to fill that in. Shock, sadness, grief, fear, all those things. And then she sits down on the floor of the cave and she sees a particular loose thread. And as soon as she picks it up, she gets a vision of an even more beautiful garment. And she begins to weave the world again with a more beautiful vision. Mm. We're that old woman. If we're willing to be witness to the collapse, we have a possibility of being called to help with the reweaving. And the way we -we we reweave is that we don't take responsibility for the world. We find the thread of our own genius, the thread of our own spirit, and we weave that into the world. And when enough people do that... The world begins to be rewoven out of threads of spirit and imagination and love, and becomes a fresh world again, which, according to the myths, has happened over and over again mm. that I
1: would call wise hope <laughs> I agree uh, I like your quote from goethe uh there are only two lasting bequests we can hope to give our children. this directly connects with the uh, well, we're talking about education. One of these is roots, the other wings. I've never heard that. I mean, that's just fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's a brilliant old old idea. <clears throat> when we're trying to educate the young and, and hopefully in that process further educating ourselves, there are all those two movements. That's the vertical imagination, rooting further down in order to be able to lift the wings further up. Um, in alchemy, they call it circulatio, the ascent followed by the descent followed by the ascent by the mm. descent, and and that's education, that's education, not an institutionalized uh, repetition of knowledge. Mm.
1: You also talk about elders and the importance of them, and of course, this society, uh, doesn't really have that respect I've spent a lot of time in India where that respect is still holds true and it was of enormous benefit to me as a young person when I first went over there with Ram Das and uh yeah I mean we're doing whatever we can to help transmit that but uh yeah you, you talk in mythic tales the elders act as bridges that help young people find their way in the world. They also serve to bridge meaningful traditions of the past with viable visions of the future, trying to become conscious. Uh, This is key. I mean, out of everything I've read of yours and all of it, it's so wonderful, Michael. But this is key in terms of what, however we could support this, we need to do that.
0: Yeah, the, the loss of elders leaves people in charge who are not even properly grown. A lot of the people that are leaders in the culture don't know who they are inside. Um And an elder is not someone who has never made mistakes or never failed. What they used to say is the elder is someone who has fallen hard and found a way to get up. In other words, the elders are those who went through descent and came out wiser. Yeah. And um in Africa, they say white hair doesn't make, make the elder. So it's not about aging. People right. are living longer and longer, but not necessarily getting yeah. wiser and wiser. Yeah. Yeah. The wisdom comes from uh accepting the wounds and the failures of life because they open the possibilities that are deeper that that have to awaken through dissent, through woundedness. And so another thing they say about the elders, you can't shock the elder because the elder's already been there. Mm-hmm. So that means the elder has to have a wide range of experience. We did decades and decades of work with severely at-risk youth, gang youth, street mm-hmm. youth, mm-hmm. homeless youth. And, and they, they know they need an elder. They know it more than the educated young people do usually because they're out there. And and they're looking for anything. And some, somehow they, they get the sense that an elder could be valuable. And so they take big risks. And for, they would always want to confess to us. And we're talking about serious confessions. Mm-hmm. We're talking about gang kids involved in violence. Yeah. And so uh, all of a sudden you're hearing, and I'll give you the example that's one of the hardest ones, when a young person says, I've killed this many people. And 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 it's shocking to look at a young person and realize that it's happened. But they say you can't shock the elder. There's a part of us that can go, no, nah, I get it. Or, you know, maybe you can find forgiveness for that. Or I'm not going to simply hold that against you. You know, so the elder is someone that has those deeper compassion, but also deeper capacity to forgive. That means the elder has forgiven themselves to some degree. Um, In Africa, again, they have a tradition where someone who's going to be an elder, you can't uh, self-appoint yourself an elder and you can't run a campaign to be an elder. (laughs) You have to be chosen by the other elders, uh, which would be both women and men. And once you're called to be an elder, they arrange a little hut in the middle of the village, and you go and sit in the hut naked covered with ashes. This is the first step to become an elder. And you have to sit there naked, and people can come in and accuse you of anything, accurately or inaccurately, and you cannot respond. So you have to go through a kind of humiliation process, and in doing so, you have to keep finding deeper, deeper parts of oneself. Because when you come out and you're an elder, you're going to be exposed to all kinds of things. And you cannot be caught in those little traps of the small self or the ego that demands that I be considered or seen a certain way you have to know better. Mm. And so what is in modern culture lacking? Elders. Mm. In other words, the elders are not elected people. That, there's usually a difference. The people that have power by way of office are one kind of thing, position. Power by position yeah. those who have authenticity and power by being, those are the elders. And so when they get stuck and they can't they say which is truth and which is false, you don't have a committee meeting, you go to the elder. And the other thing that's important to know about an elder, an elder has to be worth their salt. That is to say, an elder has to be salty has to be able to say no that's false right there what's being taught what's being said what's being done is false because it hurts the spirit of young people and it divides the adults you know the uh, elder has to be able to speak in a direct way deeply compassionate highly accurate when truth is required mm-hmm. so we we have elders in this society
1: and in uh, many of our western societies but they We seem to be overcome right now by those elected people who, you know, who do have a particular personal axe to grind in one way or the other. And that's...
0: uh, We don't have the myth. We don't have the story of the elders. It's not part of the story. The story, the modern story is, you know, you live, you get old, you die. Or don't trust anyone over thirty. Or uh, when you get too old, you don't count anymore. That we lost yeah. the myth yeah. 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 in which the elder was the living library of the community. Yeah. yeah. In which the elder was the one who understood sacrifice and knew when it was time to sacrifice, and so on. And so, so part of the process, I think, is we're trying to, or we're going to have to recover that somehow. Yeah. Uh, I should mention something else because I already said white hair doesn't make the elder. That that what they're trying to say age doesn't do it alone. It's experience mixed with imagination and and reflection that that may, awakens the elder. But there's another idea that's really valuable, which is every in everyone's heart there's an eternal youth and a wise old sage, mm-hmm. and those two are secretly talking to each other, and a person can awaken. So. There's uh, certain tribes where um, the initiation of the young people is called the awakening of the elder. And the initiation of the elders is described as returning a person to the dream of their life. Mm. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that is waiting to be relearned about the eternal youth and the wise sage. Psychologically, we all have them.
1: Mm. Wonderful, Michael. Really. And everybody who's listening out there, of course, we are going to give all of the links necessary so that you really are able, Michael has a vast amount of uh, wonderful, in different ways, from articles to podcasts uh, and so on, Uh, so you can connect. And maybe maybe you're going to get an idea, wow, I'd love to incorporate this in some way relative to... The people around me or to children or as parents to children or as educators and so on um yeah this this is extraordinarily important and i'm and i'm really happy that we prevailed here after a couple of months of, of trying to get together so yeah thank you thank you thank you really michael
0: yeah thank you and great to be with you and i agree i'm glad we finally made the connection
1: yeah so um Everybody, this is uh, Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And uh, there are many of these elders that we have been talking about that, uh, that we are so happy to share their wisdom. So we will see you next time. And again, don't forget, go to the show notes and you'll get all the links to, to everything, to basically Michael's site, and you can really connect there and see what it is that you can do to go take it and and move it forward in a way, because that's really what we need to be doing. So um, see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.
0: Thank you, Raghu. That was great.